We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Christmas, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we journey through our special Christmas series, Pastor Will continues in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 5 through 18, with part 2a of a message entitled, The Wonder of the Incarnation. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and you may want to hold on to Genesis chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, because I'll be referencing both those places a few times. Well, the beginning of Genesis, Ephesians 2, and then our study will be in Hebrews 2. We studied Hebrews chapter 1, and the message of Hebrews 1 is that God loved us so much That in this final stage, he spoke to us not by a a prophet. This final age, he didn't speak to us through a prophet. He didn't speak to us through an angel, but he spoke to us by a son. The highest ranking entity in the universe, the almighty sinless son of God, who is, as we saw, the initiation and the culmination of God's goodwill toward man. God in every age has desired to fellowship with man. He is the culmination of all of that, the initiation of all of that. Now, Hebrews 2, when it starts off its chapter, it says, because Jesus is superior to any prophet or angel, we should pay really close attention to what he said and what he did. And that is the context we find ourselves in the middle of when we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. And in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see why things in our world are such a mess, even though Jesus is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will learn how he is still Emmanuel, God with us, in these messy times. And so while we talked last week about the majesty of the Son of God, the wonder of the incarnation, the idea that the Son of God is all His majesty, that He became a man. Today, we're going to talk about the majesty of the Son of Man, the one who became a man, and what He did as a man in His elevated position because of how He succeeded where we miserably failed. So chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 5, it says, For unto the angels has He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, 
that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In Hebrews chapter 2 here, we're going to look at God's original plan for the world. We're going to look at what the, how we made a mess of that original plan. And then God's rescue plan through Jesus. So let's start off by looking at God's original plan here in these first few verses. In verse 5, he says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, we, I've been telling you about this world that's coming. You know, in, in uh, Hebrews 1, 2, he, he explains who God spoke to us through prophets and other ways in the past, has in these last days spoken unto us by a son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. This is the world that's coming. So he says, for unto the angels, he has not put in subjection the world to come, which we've been talking to you about in chapter 1. He says, but God did something else. Now, this is interesting because the concept of putting in subjection, it means to bring something under the firm control of someone. So there's an author here who's going to take something and bring it under someone else's control. Now, what is going to be brought under control? It says the world to come. Now, the world here is a different word for world than in chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, by whom Jesus also, not as only the heir of all things, but he is the one who made the worlds. The word therefore world refers to periods of time, to ages. And we talked about that last week, how in every time, in every age, you know, Jesus was instrumental in communicating God's goodwill toward men. He was instrumental, part of every covenant. He was, he was involved in all those things as the Son of God. But here the word is not the same word. Here it refers to our world, the earth, the inhabited land. It stands in contrast to the heavens. You know, we can send people off world, so to speak, but we have to send our world with them for them to survive off world, right? We have to send our environment with them for them to survive. This is our world, the place God designed for us, he created for us. And this world, this planet, this world that is coming, in other words, the one about to come here, this future world, this something God is going to bring under his control is our planet in its final age. The someone who will be in charge, he tells us here, is not the angels. In fact, the angels were never in charge of the earth. He goes back to the beginning in verse 6. He says, but one, and he's referring to Psalm 8 here, David, the psalmist, who wrote these words, but one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Quoting Psalm 8, verse 4. Now, it's interesting, the word testify here means to state as a fact. This is how things were, to state as a fact. And he quotes David, Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Now, that's interesting because in verse 5, he's talking about a world to come, but then it seems like he goes backwards in verse 6. So which is it? Is this a prophecy of Jesus coming to reign, you know, that he will be the one who's in charge? Or is it how God originally designed the earth to be? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read very clearly how God designed our planet to be. It tells us that he created Adam and Eve, it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And what did God do? Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. 
That was how God designed it to be. God's original design, before we messed it up, was he gave dominion to us. And so David, writing later, before Christ has come, he is blown away by this. In Psalm 8, verse 4, which Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 quotes here, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Thinking back to creation, the phrase there, what is man, it speaks of of something being small and insignificant. You know, 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 if I were to look at an ant and go, what is this ant? You know, I'm not saying that because it's this massive thing. Saying it because it's something small and insignificant. What is man that you are mindful of him? We talked about this last week that when God remembers something, that's what this word mindful means, that you would remember him. The word remember means to be actively involved in in a situation, to be actively involved in someone's life. So when it says when God remembered Noah, it's not that he forgot that Noah was in a boat. It was that he was going to take an active role in what was going on in Noah's life again. So David says, when God created Adam and Eve, he was actively involved in their lives. And that's what we find. We find God walking with them in the cool of the garden. God wasn't just a creator who just said, boom, enjoy, and you know, write me a card someday. You know? he, he created them, and he desired a relationship with them. He was actively involved with them. He was in the garden with them. He had this, this, this fellowship with them in the garden. And David is blown away by that. But he doesn't stop there, because he continues, and he goes, or the son of man that you should visit him. Well, who's the son of man? Well, we know that Adam was created in the image of God, right? And then we get to Genesis chapter 5, and it tells us that Adam's children were created in his image, right? That they bore his nature, his image. It was a different situation. The son of man here is not referring to Jesus. It's referring to Adam's descendants with their sinful nature, that we bear that mark now. We are still image bearers of God, but it's tainted. We have a sin nature now, right? You know, we may be made in his image, but we're also made in Adam's image. Adam rebelled against the Lord and all of his descendants perpetuated that rebellion. And so David, as he writes this, he says, why would you, why would you visit rebels and the sons of rebels? The word there, visit, it means to care for, to look after with a sense of responsibility. What an odd thing for someone to do. You know, if someone's my enemy, I I don't tend to think, oh, I need to look after them. I need to care for them. They're my responsibility. No, when someone decides to be directly opposed to me, the general reaction that most people have, myself included, is to be like, I'm done. You're over there. I'm over here. And yet the Lord, when we rebelled against him, we declared that we would not be for him, but that we would go our own way. He saw us as his responsibility, someone he wanted to care for. That's how he viewed us. And David, he is blown away by this. He could maybe see why God would be involved with Adam and Eve. (laughs) But ultimately, the question he's asking is, Lord, why are you still so involved with me? Why do you still care about me? And that's a great question. Why would the Lord be involved with us? Look at what we've done to his world. Why would he care? Because he's not like us. He loves us. 
He takes responsibility to care for us, even though he owes us nothing. God doesn't, we don't, you know, why, why God? Why God? That's a question we all ask at times. But, but it should be a different question. God, why did you allow this evil to happen? We often ask, but the question should be, why do you even care still? Why are you still involved? Why are you still trying to reach us? Why did you send Jesus? Why did you implement a rescue plan? Why not just let us burn ourselves to a crisp? And then judge us for it afterwards. Because he loves us. Because he cares for us even though he owes us nothing. David, blown away by this, understanding that God created humanity to rule the world, then we rebelled, but he's still interested in us. He's even more because he goes on to explain. He's trying to reason through this. It doesn't make any sense to him. In verse 7 here of Hebrews, which is Psalm 8, 5, he says, you made him a little lower than the angels, and then you crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the work of your hands. The idea is conveying here is we were not the prime candidate to rule the world. Like We were not the prime candidates. We were not the most qualified candidates to be in charge. To say, have dominion, subdue, fill the earth, be blessed. The phrase that he made him a little lower than the angels, it means someone with a lesser rank or status. And yet the idea of this word, it's so difficult to convey in English, it conveys that that was only a temporary status. When God originally created humanity, if you were to take it just from a a, a pros and cons basis, like what can man do and what can angels do, angels are going to come out a little bit better. All right? They're going to come out on top. And we see this all throughout the scripture, don't we? When an angel comes around a human being, the angel's not the one shriveling on the ground, right? Who's normally reacting that way? We are. The human being is reacting that way. And so, and, and, and we are so overwhelmed by their glory and their majesty, they have this, this innate thing to them of how God created them that by nature, on the outward appearance, we are definitely lower in status, honor, glory, and rank. And yet God only made us temporarily that way. For it says you crowned him with glory and honor. You exalted him. You lifted him up. Adam and Eve didn't get to that position of being over the earth because they were most qualified or better for the job. God placed them there by his grace. He exalted them to this position where God crowned them with glory and honor, a high status, by setting him over the works of your hands, over creation. The phrase, whom you did set, it's the same word used in verse 2 to refer to Jesus, who is appointed heir of all things. Same exact word. God appointed Adam and Eve to this role of ruling over his creation. Now, Verse 8, how do I know this is talking about Adam and Eve? David makes it clear. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. The phrase there have put in Hebrews here is in the aorist tense, which means a snapshot of time in the past. This is not referencing Jesus in the future. In its, you know, in its comment here, it's definitely res- uh, referencing the past. And, and he explains, for in that he put it all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, what's the scope of humanity's appointed rule? No exceptions. Everything God designed this world to have, everything he created in this world was to entirely be ruled by a man. That's how he designed it to be in the beginning. So 
Here's the question. (laughs) We look around and we see that, don't we? I mean, it's not ruled by a man. It's ruled by lots of different people, lots of different nations, lots of different countries. We're fractured into all these groups. Why is that the case? And why are we so very fractured now? Why is there war? Why is there evil? Why is there pain and sorrow and injustice? Well, even though God exalted us to this role, we messed up big time. And that's what the end of verse 8 says. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That's interesting because that's future. We start in past, but now we talk future. So we are now in a current state where this perfect rule is not only lost from the past, but it is not our present, it's, it's our future. What happened? Well, we who are on our own, without God's grace, without his help, without his power, without his influence, we who are on our own were small and insignificant. We rejected the glory and honor that God gave us, and we decided instead to take what a far lesser being offered us. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord created Adam and Eve and he gave them one rule. I mean, unless you count the one to, you know, grow and fill the earth and take dominion. That's a positive rule. There's one negative rule here. One, one don't do. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, is what the English says. In Hebrew it means, having died, you shall begin to die. The moment you eat of it, you will die spiritually. Our relationship will be cut off. The exaltation that you experienced will be lost. And from that day, you'll begin to die physically. Now, that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned against the Lord. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now, the question that a lot of people ask is, why put the tree there, Lord? Why put the tree there? Why not just have no options to fail? Well, Relationships are only meaningful if they are willing relationships. Think about this for just a moment. I, I hear people say this a lot. You know, even, even you, know, uh, you know, especially when they're struggling. You know, you're struggling to love somebody, you know, and, and you challenge them, hey, you got to love like the Lord loves. The Lord loves you. And, you know, well, I'm not the Lord. And, and, and when it's said, there, there's a thought in my mind sometimes when it's said that, you know, the individual is thinking, well, like God just has like some, some innate contract inside of him, you know, that, that binds him to loving us. It's like, you know, it's almost like, you know, the Lord wakes up and he's like, oh, it's, 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 ah, it's another day. Like I, I have to love everyone today. I mean, it's just part of my contract. Like I don't want to love people, but I have to love people because, you know, it's just programmed into me somehow. Like there's no volition there. There's no will involved in this process. That God has no choice because he's God. You know, it's interesting. Hmm. Very interesting. An interaction between Jesus and the Father in the garden where he said, if you're willing, let this cup pass. Isn't that an interesting thought? 
God has volition. He is a free moral agent. He can choose to do whatever he wants. But because that's why we call him God, <laughs> he always chooses love, right? He is love. It's his nature. It's who he is. He always makes that choice. He's always holy. He's always good. He's always just. He's always righteous. He's always merciful. Always. It's who he is. So when we talk about volition and being created in the image of God, that God's choice matters is real. It's a, it's a real choice. He looks at me and he goes, I love you. We're not going to get to it this week, but one of the things we're going to learn next week when we look at the wonder of the incarnation is this idea that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Think about that for a minute. You know, if, if I were Jesus, when, when I got to heaven, you know, I, you, know, there, you know, the big announcement, duh, 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 you know, now introducing, you know, I'd be like, mourners. <coughs> You know, I wouldn't be proud that, because I know me. I know me. And he knows me. He loves me every day, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what you're doing. He has set his love upon you. Now, that means if we're going to have a relationship, our choice has to matter too. We can't be programmed. And for choices to be real, there needs to be options. It's the question that we shouldn't be asking is, why did God put a tree there that's so that we could fall? The question is, is, how amazing is God's love that he'd only put one? Why not 40 or 50 trees? We're not worthy of just one. When you think of how small and insignificant God created Adam and Eve, you think... He, He'd have filled the garden with tons of opportunities to fail because this ain't going to work. You're nowhere near me. You don't deserve a relationship with me. You'll never love me like I love you. And yet God only created one. He filled the entire garden with everything else for them to enjoy. It gave them only one option that they could fail in, one option to choose. No, I don't want it. I don't want all the blessings. I don't want the relationship. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to be crowned with glory and honor. I want to make my own glory and honor. And that's what we see in chapter 3. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? And the woman said, you know, The right question would have been, Did God really only put one in there? I mean, because we're repeating Satan's question today. It's not like it's, no, one's, no one is a genius who's going, well, if God really loved us, why did he create a tree that we could fall? Scratch genius, you're just repeating what Satan said. God really tell you, you couldn't eat of every tree? Wait, he created, you know, 17,894 other trees here, you know, and you, can't, you can only eat of 17,800 and whatever number I said, minus one. Not in the notes. And the woman said unto him, she starts off okay. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. I mean, we got plenty. But of the tree, fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, I mean, it's not even one they, they had to work to get to. It was in the middle. You know? It wasn't even, it wasn't like one that was right on the front yard, you know? Every day you wake up and you see the tree. You had to work to get to it. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, 
shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I don't have time to go into the theology of all this here, but she did add to the word of God, and that always gets us in trouble. You kind of get a sense here that there's a possibility that she is, is resenting, thinking God's holding something back a little bit. And here comes the enemy's lie. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. For God does know that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you will be as God's knowing good and evil. It's interesting. He doesn't say you'll be like God, but you'll be as God's. You, you'll be, you will have a higher status than the one that God elevated you to. He held back. He, he, I mean, you were made small and significant. And he raised you up here, but he could have raised you up here and he didn't. So if you do this, you'll achieve what he's holding back from you. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and this one always gets me, a tree to be desired to make one wise. I've never looked at a tree like that. I have never looked at my orange tree in the backyard and said, that thing's going to make me the smartest man alive. And so she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and then gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both, they were opened Something did change. And they knew that they were naked. That sounds like a bit of a disappointing result. Aware of your exposure, whereas before it was fine. Aware of things about you that you were never aware of before that you shouldn't have needed to be aware of. And so they sewed fig leaves together. <laughs> this has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.